I want to start our conversation today to come back and to reframe the series we've had as Justin elaborated on, talking about what it means to give up something of worth in our mental health in particular, to deepen our relationship with God. Um, but also think through, well, we had last week, we had a time of lament, we had a time of celebrating over feasting, and the story continues, as we've just heard from Justin. So my question I have for everyone this morning, in line with that, is this. What does it mean to be surprised? What does it mean to be shocked? What thoughts come through? What feelings are emoted from such moments? I, know I was thinking through various examples, and the simplest act I had was, well, what happens, what, what surprise brings when a coffee appears on your desk in the middle of the workday? You didn't ask for it, but it turns up. Or, for that matter, seeing a new movie, seeing a new band. I'm probably, that was probably a case for you, Simon, I presume, over this week. I also had a, also was thinking through, um, had, I think I caught the mosaic bug that gastro bug that got through a whole bunch of us the last couple of weeks. And that was a surprise on Friday, thinking it was over and it was not. That was a surprise. But nonetheless, these moments and experiences that force us to change our thinking a little bit, force us to reframe what we were thinking purely because of an event, something that we may have had control of it, but probably more likely that we did not. And I think that tells well about the Easter story. Jesus is alive. Hope is here. And people were finding out. Yet, I imagine as we're going to get into with Thomas shortly, that in these eyewitness accounts, you had people that are pretty sceptical of what's going on. They saw a man dead on the cross. And though these people are coming, are sharing this good news, I must wonder whether or what logic says, what someone's conclusions are about this man who died. Surely he can't come back. I mean, some may have pure optimism, but others surely are sceptical. And that's what we want to get to this morning and talking about our experiences and talking about scepticism. And I'm framing this a little differently to Justin, um, as he talked about last week, or actually a couple of weeks ago, for this notion of I guess my definition this morning in, in that scepticism is this assurance that what someone's telling you is wrong as such. But then time passes. Then you see the person that you thought was dead is alive and you have to reframe what you thought, right? Your experiences may say one thing, the surprise brings another and you're sort of forced into thinking something new. And that's what I want to share this morning. I want to share that firstly through some personal storytelling, some rather personal storytelling, and then look to Thomas, and look to Thomas's story here, and to see what we can glean and reflect on this morning about our experiences and possibly what conclusions we've made about ourselves, about the way we relate to other people, or perhaps even God himself. So I'll grab another question. When was I sceptical? Well, when I was preparing for this, it got pretty dark, I must admit. I was thinking about a night about seven years ago. The last time I had a night, I stayed a night in Brooklyn 
wasn't the most eventful one. Um, I was taken away to a respite house. Um, it was a difficult night mentally. I think there were minor grievances and conversations that led to after hours, that led to hospital, that led to South Harmon Hospital, and led to being taken away to in a DHB car. Um, firstly to my flat to get some belongings and see some friends who were there to support me um, and not really been sure what was going on. And then secondly, to get the papers to go to this respite house for my own safety, um, for fear of further self-harm. And, and here I am sitting in bed, in this very uncomfortable bed that night, wondering what had just happened, who was around, was there disappointment and me talking about death and wanting that really significantly. For me, getting to that particular place started with very minor grievances. I don't even remember what instigated it. It probably was a bad customer phone call at work, being in the call centre at the time. But it sparked all these stories about my childhood, about family, about schooling, about teenage years, and just these layers upon layers of pain emerged from nowhere. They were familiar, they were stories of failure, they were stories of shame and disappointment and rejection and feeling lost in the world and this pain just consumed me to the point that I just became numb to it. To the point where I basically became numb to life itself, hence this position I was in, sitting at respite, going, what the heck is going on? And not really being present either. Underneath all these experiences that I'd had, I'd built up these stories about myself. I was certain of certain things about the world and me. I was skeptical that they could ever change. I was skeptical that I could ever be normal. I always felt, and I'd been years in depression, years in anxiety, and just felt like I was the project person in church. And maybe it wasn't said, but it sure felt and seemed like it based on the conversations I had. I was skeptical of, well, ever being accepted for who I was, and I didn't really know who I was at that point. I felt like I was doing a whole bunch of stuff. But was that actually acceptance, or was that just something different? I was skeptical of ever seeing change. I think there was a lot of talk in counselling, a lot of talk with others around me around willpower around discipline, around being desperate enough to make the changes, to see, some, see my mental health improve. And every time that would seem to happen, I would be fearful and guilt-driven and just drive further into these dark places. And on top of that, there was a scepticism of ever being loved by God. I mean, I was the person that thought I had my purpose found in my teenage years and said a whole bunch of things back then. But as time went on, as enough sermons were heard, as enough books were read and interpretations were made, I just got lost. I got guilty. I was, felt like I was not welcome. I was not a good enough male in the Christian church. I was not a good enough person, etc., etc. Iterate that according to what you will. And then in this particular moment, exhausted, tired, adrenaline had run at the hospital. 
I was regretful of, I guess, not harming further. I guess I was regretful of not finishing the act. I was skeptical that it could ever happen. And that was a really dark place. And to those around me, it probably seemed delusional. But yet, the experiences and my understandings of the world and the way I was framing it for that matter meant that I was, I kind of, it kind of made a bit of sense, I guess. I mean, I went to bed that night wondering, what, what is hope? What is life worth at that point? And I kind of want to segment from there because I know it's, it sounds a really dark place and I'm going to move that a little bit, but I want to come to Thomas for a minute because there's some learnings here that, over this week that glean well and reflect on well about what happens afterwards. So who is Thomas? He's one of the 11 disciples. He's still alive and he has been with Jesus for a number of years. He's heard... He's heard the words of hope. He's been around it. We don't hear much of Thomas, but what we, the little bit we do here seems to embody a disciple who understands these words. In John 11, it talks through the acknowledgement that Lazarus is dead. And Jesus and the disciples want him to return, but there's this fear. There's this fear of going back because of what the Jews wanted to do to Jesus last time. And Thomas in that place... This one phrase says, let us also go that we may die with them. So I would glean from there that he understands a little bit of what Jesus wanted to do. Who he was here for. He saw the words, saw the healings and the miracles and the way he was changing people's lives. The hope and peace that he was proclaiming. But yet, in the prior week, before this passage that Justin shared, what has happened? Well, first of all, he's dead. The man, the king of the Jews, the person that was to be the Messiah, is on a cross, has died, has spit a spear in his side and has come out blood and water. He's gone. And he's been dead for three days. I mean, this is the healer of the person who was healing. Though Lazarus came back, and others came back, this is the person who healed in the first place. At what point is he just gone? At what point is this mission, is this message, just fall away? And yet, hope comes in an empty tomb. It's one thing for Jesus to rise again, but if he doesn't see anybody, if he doesn't meet anyone, then has hope come? And so he meets the woman at the tomb. He meets the men at Emmaus, as we shared and reflected on last week while I was smelling a lot of fertilizer, it felt like, so thank you, Justin, for that. <laughs> he meets the disciples in a locked-up room, fearful for their lives, fearful of enduring the same fate as Jesus, for what end. And yet, they see. They see. And they're shocked. They don't believe their eyes. And then they go to Thomas. Now, based on what the prior events have been, it kind of does make sense that Thomas is sceptical. I mean, they call, we refer to him as doubting Thomas, and I think he's not necessarily 
confused or unbelieving. It's not a Lord help me in my unbelief situation. It's one that's, no, I know what I saw. I'm certain of what I saw until I'm proven otherwise, until I'm given a new experience. Then I, don't, I can't believe your words, even though I know you, even though you've clearly seen. Thomas wants to see for himself. He says here, I want to see those nail marks. I want to see his side. I wondered this week, could he have contemplated a resurrection? If he hadn't seen, could you believe you've seen? How much of a paradigm shift, how much of a shift in thinking does it take to move from a man who you saw was dead, who you flee the situation from, to then be told that the man is alive, he's back. And all the things he talked about all make sense. And so he's asking for assurance. He doesn't want any eyewitness account. And he has to wait a week. God's certainly not impatient. He certainly has to wait a week. But yet Jesus enters that similar locked up room. Exclaims, peace be with you. And directly goes to show those hands. And show that side. The miracle that hope is. And the surprise that hope is. What happens to those assurances now? What happened to those experiences and the need for assurance? It seems like it just has to go away, right? How else can you describe someone who you think is dead who you can see for yourself? And I wonder, in this, mo- in this particular moment of shock, what he's thinking about, the years of mission, the years spent with Jesus, all those words that probably funneled out the back door when Jesus died all come rushing back and it all seems to make sense in a declaration, my Lord, my God, exclamation mark. At the same time, Jesus has this refrain that seems more intended for us than it is for the disciples who clearly had all seen them once. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Whether that's it for us now, in terms of being surprised by hope, to, to see God, to see Jesus' hope in our lives in places and spaces that we don't quite expect. Well. Let me come back to that very depressed self sitting in bed that night at respite. Skeptical about acceptance, skeptical belonging, skeptical of ever changing. Well, I must admit I woke up the next morning and I didn't feel any different. Probably was a little more rested, but I didn't feel much different. I didn't realise this at the time, but what I needed was a disruption. Some sense of surprise, some sense of shock to reframe this pain, reframe this experience, reframe all the stories I was telling myself to say, this can be different. Hope is not this. It had to come unconventionally. And that's kind of what happened. 
It was slow. I don't think, I, I didn't have a burning bush instant moment where it just turned 180. But it was a series of little things. It was continual, consistent moments of understanding. Not of solving anything, but of, of acceptance first and foremost. It was not looking to the pragmatic, it was not looking to tackle the violence or the resistance that was underneath me. It was something very different, it was non-violence. It was a sense of embracing these stories rather than trying to distract myself or rather than trying to bend them in favour of something else and forcefully believe that they're true. It was the gift of presence from those around me and sharing words that were not said the first time, not said the fifth, the tenth, the twentieth, but consistently given to me over and over again to echo a different story. And it was a surprise of blog posts I randomly found on Facebook that turned into a, re, a reimagination of certain scripture passages that I just found difficult. Books and authors and recommendations that constantly surprised me with a new way of looking at faith. Faith not as a way to trip me up in a mental health sense, not as a way to add pain, but a journey that could be about peace first and foremost, a journey that could be stripped without guilt. And that's partly why I'm here in this community. And so I had all these small series of shocks, but the true surprise and the true sense of that word came and comes when I look backwards. Looking back in hindsight to see what has happened, to see what God has done, to see how the story changed out of a very dark place into one where light somehow got in and is continually and is continually doing its work in a rather unexpected surprising way. That's kind of where we where we end up, but I come back to this question. What does it mean to be surprised? What does it mean to be surprised like Thomas did? And maybe that surprise doesn't come about through that single moment. Maybe it comes about in a series of moments. But what does it look like for us to be surprised, not necessarily with coffee, but with hope? With the peace that passes all understanding. I don't know where this lands. I always am intrigued as to what this sounds like and what this looks like. But I do want to leave us with a couple of questions to mull over. I know that Justin has communion that we'll get into shortly, but I want to give a bit of space. I know, and I was thinking about this word scepticism and going, it's a really tough word that has a whole bunch of interpretations. Let me change my questions a little bit and start sitting in these places, I think. I value that we can make time for silence and we make time to sit and reflect. So if we had a couple of minutes, I do have a couple of questions here. What about our experiences? What do they tell us about ourselves? What do they tell us about others and what do they tell us about God? And rather than writing some question about how we're going to find surprise in our lives, which seems a bit ridiculous to me if surprise is something that we can't expect, how about this question then? Where does hope sit? Is it in the room? Is it 
Is it, is it a post-it note sitting inside, inside the room that you can't see? Is it sheltered away in the corner? Where is hope in these stories? I'm starting to be convinced that without being surprised, without the notion of surprise, without the notion of shock, how do we change? How can we reframe what is familiar, what is clear and logical and understandable to us? And I firmly believe that's where God sits with us. So.